at that point, he's staring directly at us. You can't move. You can't blink. You can't breathe deep. You just sit there and you just statue. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. This time, we'll hear about a pursuit that's defined humans since our beginning, the hunt. Jessie Johnson has devoted her life to conservation and ethical hunting. She works for one nonprofit and co-founded another. Every day, she practices with her bow, and every year, she leaves the nonprofit world behind for the backcountry. I take the month of September off. (laughs) It is my time to be out and sort of connect with everything that I work so hard to protect, and it reminds me on the days that are a little tougher why I'm out there doing it. I live in Lander, Wyoming, so right along the Wind River Mountains, and I spend the majority of my time elk hunting up in the Wind Rivers. And this particular morning, it was cold, it had just snowed, and it was one of those days where you step out of the car and there's this perfect blanket of untouched snow, and it's still dark, so you have like stars above you. And and I remember hiking in, and I got up to a ridge, and the sun was just coming up, and this like golden almost yellow glow was hitting the trees that had fresh snow on it and were frozen and like it was sort of that wonderland feeling and I remember getting up to this ridge and there was this opening in the trees that let you look down into this canyon and then look past this canyon into the rest of the winds and then past that you could just barely see the lights of Lander like way far away down there and I remember just like sitting at the top going man I don't care what happens today this is an unbelievable moment up here. Jessie and her hunting partner, Jared, used reeds to send out a few bugles. Elk bulls bugle to attract cows to their herds and to compete with other bulls. Then they waited to see if any elk called back. That morning was actually silent for the first almost half day. And so it was a lot of walking around and calling into the silence, but not getting an answer and kind of, you know, thinking like, well, maybe, you know, maybe they moved down because it's snowed more and maybe they aren't in this area. We weren't seeing any sign, so no track and um, no scat or anything like that. This particular day, we were way high up in the winds and we were in a place that was sort of on the edge of a canyon that had a river that goes through it and pretty far back, a couple miles back. And we had bumped over this ridge, hadn't heard anything, and so dropped down off the ridge for a while. And um, we were hiking, you know, looking and enjoying this. <laughs> I remember as we're, like, bumping off this ridge, the sun had come up and the snow that sort of clings to the top of the trees is starting to melt, so it, like, plops down. And when you're hunting, it's amazing how many things sound like a large animal walking through, whether it's a 700-pound squirrel that jumps off a tree or a bit of snow that falls off that you're dead sure is an elk. But I remember walking through this stand of aspens and, you know, there's snow dropping off and it's cold, but it's, you know, beginning to warm up and everything's sort of waking up. So the birds are beginning to kind of like move around a little bit. And that was probably 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. You just hike. I mean, elk hunting, you just cover ground. If you're not in them, you just keep moving till you find them. And this day, we just didn't get in them for a long time. We dropped down into this canyon, 
pretty steep. I mean, it was one of those times where at some point you were kind of on your butt scooting down and then hit this big boulder outcropping that has this like large boulders and large sort of expanses of rock that opens up and it's just this unbelievable country. It's, you know, there's like the little green lichen that like clings to the sides of the rocks. It's this bright neon green when it's surrounded by snow. And you walk through these places that sometimes have teepee rings and you're just in this really wild country. We were back there and walking through and it was probably 10.30 and we kind of had that discussion as like when it hits that time and it's starting to be 10.30, 11 o'clock, you kind of like think, think like maybe, maybe it's just not going to happen today. Maybe we need to try a different area and hike out. And we sat down and had a granola bar and we're discussing what we were going to be doing next. And the sun kind of comes up fully and like once you have that bright light and it's just never as good at hunting in the middle of the day as it is in morning or evening. And so we were having this discussion and I was actually taking a video for a public lands day thing for my job. And in the middle of the video, I see my hunting partner's eyes light up and I was like, Oh, what do you do? And I stopped, I turned the video, little phone video off. And he was like, I think I heard a bugle. And it was way far away. It's amazing how that sound can travel and also how far away it can sound was actually not that far away. We were like, okay, well, let's go, let's go see if you actually heard that and packed everything up and dropped down off this little rise, went around a corner and walked into what will be probably the most incredible thing I will ever witness hunting. Six different elk herds had mixed, run into each other, mixed their cows together, something. It was cows everywhere, bulls bugling everywhere. These bulls are trying to sort out whose cows are whose or whose cows was that guy's, but I'm going to take them. And It's just this un- unbelievable soundscape. Just going around that one corner, the whole basin lit up. Jared, my hunting partner, would make this. He would bugle, and four to five elk would respond and answer back. And I mean, from every, like, whether it was close, far away, left, right, behind us, it was unbelievable. Your adrenaline just spikes, and your heart starts pounding, and it's this, this sort of primal excitement that happens. I remember, like, putting my backpack down because I always feel a little more agile if I don't have the weight on my back. And picking up my bow and Jared doing the same thing and kind of looking at each other like, oh my gosh, like we are, this is incredible. Like let's, let's go bring home some meat. And uh, walked into this, it was this like dead downfall. It was an old burn. There was snags and sticks and things that had come through so it's not easy just walking you kind of have to crawl around through it and these elk move through it like they're phantoms they don't make a sound it's unbelievable and they just kind of ghost through there and you the only way that you know they're there is you hear the bugling and you hear the cow calls and we walked in and we got on one bull that came in and he came in behind us and was a nice looking five by five which is 
five points on one side, five points on the other. A healthy, beautiful looking animal. And he came in behind us and you know, the sun is up, but you're in these like dead snag trees. And so the sunlight's coming through and snow is melting and dropping off. He came into about 30 yards and, and winded us, which is the wind blew from behind us and he got our scent. He didn't present a shot, but it was one of those times where you watch this animal come in and you just have this ability to take time to appreciate the moment and see this huge mammal. He left and we kept calling and, you know, we'd get some bulls to come in. We had a very small little spike, which is just like one prong on either side. Um, And they're usually really young and they're kind of fun to call in because they're a little, you know, they're newer to the game. They're a little, I don't want to call them dumber, but they just aren't quite as savvy as the big guys. And they're always kind of fun to watch. And during the rut, they just don't really know what to do. They're getting run around by all the bigger bulls, and they're like kind of want to be with the cool kids, but they get their butts kicked by the cool kids. So they're always a fun one to see. And we were just had this unbelievable sort of hour of being in elk consistently and having bulls come in but not present shots and cows milling around us. And when you're in those positions, it's almost like there's too many elk. There's eyes everywhere. If you get seen by one cow, she's going to let the entire hillside know that you're there, so you just have to be very conscious of how you move. These animals were coming in sometimes to 30, 40, 20 yards, and you just have to stand still, and you just try not to move, and you try not to make any sound, and that's why you have camo, you just try and blend in. We walked through this burn and got over to the edge, which kind of goes into a little bit different habitat, less burn, it has a marsh that kind of borders it. And we walked through this burn and finally was able to call to an elk that actually left his cows. Um, Jared has, I mean, he's been hunting 15, 20, 25 years and has been calling elk and just really knows the game. And he did a, a call, it's called Bull Calling Cows, which is essentially mimics as if he was another elk that was calling to this bull's cows. And it's essentially like saying like, hey baby, come over here and hang out over here. I'm better looking than that guy. And this bull was pissed. And he left his group of cows to sort of come find us and kick our butts, really. We didn't see him, we heard him for about 10 minutes. Um, You just kind of like spend this standoff time of trying to convince him that you are an elk. And he couldn't see us, we were tucked on this tree line and then there was a flat expanse of open area and then it went around a corner and dropped out of sight and he was around that corner so we could hear him he could hear us he probably wasn't further than 60 yards when we were doing this but we just couldn't see him I remember just that like bounding heartbeat that was going, I was, it was so exciting and so incredible and so unbelievably lucky to be in a situation like that. We were calling and this elk finally started coming in and you feel him, you hear him start coming closer and he dropped down sort of around this corner and I remember the first thing I saw and it's funny, I think a lot of people, the first thing they look at with elk are the antlers and I remember, actually, the first thing I saw of him was his back. 
because he's this massive animal and he has this tawny coat and he was backlit by the sun and so the sun was coming through these like guard hairs that were sticking up on his back and it looked like he was just sort of outlined in gold. I remember looking at that and just seeing from the sheer body size that this was a massive elk. Then then looked at the antlers and realized that this is a massive elk. And he had six points on one side and six points on the other of his antlers. He was just healthy, gorgeous animal. And he came walking down this sort of like ridge line around this corner and stepped through a couple trees. And he was at about 40 yards then. And, and I remember turning and looking and being like, why isn't he drawing his bow? Why isn't, why isn't he drawing his bow? This, this elk was at broadside. He was 40 yards. He was sort of stopped, like perfect position. And and Jared, I think afterwards, when I asked like why he didn't, he said he, he didn't think that he couldn't be seen. So the movement, the elk would have seen and probably spooked. But this elk turned and came in and I was on one side of a tree kneeling. And so I had tree boughs sort of coming down, shielding me a little bit sight-wise. There's, you know, snow around me, and Jared was standing to my left, the tree trunk between us. And it was a perfect setup. This elk turned and came directly towards us. And he walked from 40 yards straight towards us, head on, at that point, he's staring directly at us. You can't move, you can't blink, you can't breathe deep. You just sit there and you just statue. He stopped at 10 yards and neither of us had had an opportunity to draw and to get our bows even like into our hands really. And he stopped and we were like, oh my God, he's gonna wind us because we felt the breeze kind of push behind us and everything just slows down. You'd hear like snow fall off of a branch. You'd hear a squirrel far away and like everything just sort of disappears and it, you go into this like tunnel of focus. This huge animal is 10 yards from you. He stopped, just looked right on, opened his mouth and bugled at us. And I remember the steam coming like pouring out of his mouth into these like tendrils and he had little spittle that came out and he just roared a challenge bugle and it you felt it vibrate your sternum it was I will never forget that sound but when elk bugle they close their eyes and I watched his eyes flutter closed and I have no idea how I had the presence of mind to do this, but I watched his eyes close and I went, here's my opportunity and drew my bow. I got almost to full draw by the time his eyes opened back up and he caught the last tail end of my movement. And I think he thought, he startled a little bit, so he spooked, turned broadside, so he was sort of standing perpendicular to me now. And... I think what he convinced himself of is that what he'd witnessed was just like a little drop of snow because I was able to stay at full draw, completely still. He never gave an indication that he knew we were there. And so I had time and he's at 10 yards. And I remember holding the bow back 
with the tension and being able to settle the pins of the site right over his vitals and being able to take time. And there's always a little mantra that as an archer I say, which is like aim, aim, keep aiming, keep aiming. And the way that I shoot a bow is with back tension. So rather than like a trigger that you kind of know is happening, you sit there, you draw, you aim, and you slowly sort of spread your shoulder blades apart. And that movement is what fires the bow. And that should always be somewhat surprising because it makes you focus on where you're aiming and less about pulling the trigger. And so it helps negate what is called target panic. So it, it helps you be more accurate. And so I'm sitting there with these pins on these vitals and I, I have this thing of like saying thank you, saying this is a beautiful animal. Thank you for being here. Thank you for this opportunity. Aim, 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 and fired. The arrow flew very true. I couldn't have stuck it in a better place. The impact that an arrow makes, you sort of feel in your whole body when it hits another animal. And you know if it's a good hit or not a lot of times by the sound. And it sounded just like exactly how you want it to makes sort of a thwack. It's not unlike something hitting a watermelon. <laughs> and this elk stood. He didn't even jump the string. So the sound of the bow going off makes a little twang. And often elk will spook and they do this kind of hunched jump. And this animal didn't even, I mean, he didn't hear the bow because of the sounds that were happening with the snow melting. He didn't know I was there. He did not know he had been hit. So I could see my fletching sticking out of him in exactly where you would want to hit an elk. He was still standing broadside at 10 yards, and I just had to, like, take this breath and go, like, okay, it was a good shot. Um, I had the time to look at it, and he slowly turned and walked away, walked, like, calm walk. And I could see he stood at about 30 yards then, stopped again, clearly beginning to feel being shot, I could see a little bit of blood coming out of the wound, and then I could see a little bit of blood come out his mouth. And then he stood there for 15 minutes. At 30 yards, he was facing away, so we were looking down at his tail and then sort of past him, which was, it was surreal to look at this elk who was then looking at the expanse of the wind rivers that went off this hill, and it was this very picturesque, bizarre feeling to sit and watch this. you always wait 30 minutes after you shoot an animal. And the reason for doing that is to give them a peaceful, respectful time to die. So that's why you didn't shoot another arrow? Well, I, you know, looking back, I probably should have just been putting as many arrows into them as I could have. But I was, I looked at that shot and at 10 yards, what was very obviously a lung shot and a very good shot at that, I didn't want to spook him by drawing and putting more arrows in him. I was really sure this was a dead elk, and so I just waited, and he was weaving back and forth, clearly dying, and a cow came down from around that same corner and made a little cow call and sort of like a chirp sound and got his attention, and after that 15 minutes, he turned and very with difficulty left our view after sort of towards this, where this cow was. And 
We waited another 15 minutes because you just want to give them that time. The last thing you want to do is get too hasty and come around the corner and, and spook an animal who's in the midst of dying. Elk are unbelievably tough animals. They can live through some incredible injury and uh, they can also run a very long ways even with an arrow sticking through both lungs. So you just wait and it's torturous, especially when the animal leaves your view. And I was sitting there and I was excited because I felt like I had a really good shot on this bull. I was thankful because I had a really good shot on this bull. And I was just sort of taking in this moment of gratitude, of a little bit of melancholy. I think whenever you take the life of an animal that is, um, it, it just should always weigh on you a little bit. You should never be lighthearted about it. And, and so it, it's a heavy moment, it's a heavy joy that, that follows a very good shot on an animal, especially an elk, because something about their size just sort of brings in a little more magnitude. Once that 15 minutes, it was 15 minutes of watching him in sight, 15 minutes of him being out of sight had been up, my hunting partner and I looked at each other and said like, okay, let's go find him. And you know, Jared looked at me and says like, we're gonna walk around that corner and he's just gonna be right there. That was such a good shot. Both of us had a really confident feeling and walked around the corner and there was no elk. That's, you know, not entirely abnormal. You know, I was like, okay, well, we're going to go a little bit further, another 100 yards, and he's going to be there. And we walked for another 10 minutes, and there was no elk. And I started getting this kind of, like, feeling of, like, oh, no. And walked maybe 200 yards from where I'd shot him and in, in the direction that he had gone, and there was no elk. It was over some really rocky ground that was somewhat dry because it was on like the sunny side of the hillside. And so the snow had melted. It was hard ground. It was rock. There was no track. And there was no blood. There was blood from where I shot him. There was blood from where he stood. But because he still had the arrow in him, it plugged the hole. And so there was no blood trail. 30 minutes turned into an hour, turned into five, turned into the rest of the day. You start grid searching once you hit a certain point. I, I sat back down. I went back through what had happened, and I knew it was a good shot. I knew it was a dead elk. I just didn't know where he was. Went back to where I shot him and started working out from where we shot him, looking for track, looking for blood, looking for anything. That, that heavy joy sits down into a heavy responsibility and heavy sadness when you can't recover an animal like that. And spent the day walking up and down this not, not steep hill, way back into the backcountry of the winds, just up and down, up and down, looking in underneath things that are, you know, sort of toppled over or looking past it, you know, you're in deadfall, so elk blend in so well. You just are peeling the hillside. Didn't find him that day. And hiked out at dark, exhausted and just heartbroken.
that night I punched my tag. A lot of people don't always do that when there's a wounded animal that they don't find. You know, as a hunter, you get one tag, one elk. And if you don't find it, often hunters will not notch the tag and then continue hunting. And that's that's not why we hunt. That's not why we work tirelessly in wildlife conservation. That's not that's not who most hunters are. And so notching that tag that night, regardless of having found my elk or not, was really important to me because you just, we get one. And in a world that I think takes far more than we often need, you get one. To not respect that life, whether it was still alive and injured or out there dead somewhere and I had not found it, to not count that as a life taken would never have sat right with me. Jessie hunts for food. She hasn't bought meat in a grocery store in seven years. She knows where her food comes from and that it had a good life and a swift, merciful death. Jessie didn't want to waste anything. She had to find her elk. We came back the next morning before sunup, hiked back down to where I shot the elk as the sun was coming up and started looking again, looked tirelessly that entire day about halfway through the day we ran into another hunter who was down there hunting and I had to tell him what happened and I was like if you find an animal down like please let me know it's you know gave him a description of the elk and of the general vicinity where I shot him and of you know sort of the direction I thought he'd gone and I think every little bit in your life you get these people that are little gifts that just show you an unbelievable amount of human kindness that just really hits you. And I was feeling horrible, and I was tired. And this hunter goes, you know, I've had this happen. I know what you're feeling. And he put down his bow and spent the rest of the day looking for this elk with us. We'd never met him before. We just happened upon him. He just offered help keep looking. And that kind of camaraderie amongst two people that didn't know each other because it was a shared experience was I, that's just going to stick with me and, and it's going to be something that if I'm ever able to help another hunter there it's going to be a pay it forward situation for sure. The three hunters looked for Jesse's elk in a 400 yard radius from where she'd shot it. The terrain was steep and knotted with trees and the going was slow. Looked for that day looked a third day and by that point have felt like that, I mean, I knew what every blade of grass on that mountain looked like. And decided to stop looking that third day. On the fourth day, Jesse had to go back to work. It was the last day of archery season. Jared went hunting again. My hunting partner shot an elk that night (laughs) down in the same place that I shot mine. I got a spot message that said, hey, I have an elk down. When people have an elk down, whether you hunt with them or your friends or, you know, everybody pitches in to go hike an animal out. It's a huge animal. It's a lot of meat. And so I said, okay, well, we'll go in tomorrow. And, you know, you helped me look for two days for this elk. The least I can do is help you pack yours out. So that fourth day, had that elk down, and he hiked out a 
piece of meat from his elk. He processed it in the field. It was later in the evening, so he hung the pieces in the tree to hang overnight, and he walked out. And when he got to his truck, there was a note on the windshield that says, I found your elk, and I flagged it. And it was from this hunter who had helped us look that second day. Jared called me. He's like, someone found your elk. This is five days after I shot the elk. We went down, and the first flagging was within 400 yards of where I'd shot him. It was where we'd been looking. And then the second flagging was still within that 400 yards. And the third flagging was still within that 400 yards. And then it took a little turn, and it went up a little hill through sort of some odd obstacles, like down trees. And my hunting partner and a friend of mine who came with me, they hung back, which I was very thankful for because it was really important to me to have a moment with this animal. And came up to that last bit of flagging that was hanging over this animal, and the first thing I saw were the tips of his antlers that had a sunbeam coming down on it. And... They had a little bit of dew still on the antlers, and he was in this sunbeam in this very peaceful position of, I mean, he had just walked and toppled over. There was no struggle marks or anything like that. He had just died walking and died pretty fast, and he was lying under this little bit of flagging and a dead tree that was sort of had fallen and leaned against another tree, so it made this little arch over him, and the sunbeam was coming down. And I, those five days of not knowing, of responsibility, of a little bit of guilt having not found him, and then just the question of, God, I hope this animal died quickly and peacefully, being answered in that moment of, yes, he did. I went to my knees. It brought me to my knees. Even now it's hard to talk about without tearing up, but it was relief and it was gratitude and it was sadness because it was five days and he was clearly, the meat was spoiled at that point. And I walked up to this animal. The first thing I was looking at was where'd my arrow hit? It was just right where I thought it was. It was exactly the shot I thought I'd done and looked down at the GPS and he was 436 yards from where I'd shot him, 36 yards from footprints from where we were looking for him. And so I sat there looking at this bull and Jared came up and my friend Josh, who was down there hunting with us, came up and I had been for the last five days sort of having an internal war with myself about what I was going to do when I found this elk, especially after the third day, which is sort of the day where I was pretty sure that meat was going to either starting to be spoiled or was going to be completely spoiled. And had come to the conclusion only after sitting in front of that animal that I was going to take 
the antlers and the ivories from him. It was a very conflicting feeling because on one hand, it felt wrong to have taken this life and to not take or use anything. But the only thing that was that I could take at that point was antlers and ivories. Um, everything else had spoiled. But then it also was this conflicting feeling of poachers only take the antlers and the ivories. That's what people that I don't respect their hunting ethics do. After sitting in front of this animal, decided that I was going to take the antlers and ivories. And the ivories are their teeth, their top teeth, and they are the remnants of what used to be a tusk. They are memories and trophies of a hunt in that sense. And I use the word trophy very sparingly because when I use it, I, I use it as this is, this is something that captures a memory and captures a moment and captures an experience. And it was really important to me that this story, this animal be captured in a moment. And so to bring this, this animal out and to give him a place of honor and to tell his story is the best thing I can do to make sure that for me, that meat, that life was not wasted. And to take the antlers and to put him in a place of honor in my house is the best thing I can do for this animal. Because at some point, somebody's going to ask me, did you get that elk? And it's really important for me to be able to tell that story. Our storyteller was Jessie Johnson. She hasn't needed to go to the grocery store for meat this year after all. A woman heard her story and brought Jessie meat from her own harvest. But she has a daily reminder of her elk. Next to its antlers and ivories in her house, she's put a quote from Clarissa Pinkola Estes. The shadow that walks behind us is four-legged. You can see photos and videos of Jessie's hunt and more information about her nonprofit work at our website, humannaturepodcast.org. Thanks to our most recent supporters, including Chitra Subarian from Norcross, Georgia, with a special shout out to her daughter Priya for her birthday. Thanks also to Bronwyn and Graham Buck from Guelph, Ontario, Sonia Dickey from El Cajon, California, and Peter Malege from Vestal, New York who says, your show helps me recalibrate my compass on my weekly Sunday strolls. If you'd like to join these listeners in supporting the show, click donate at humannaturepodcast.org. I'm Caroline Ballard. Human Nature is produced by Alana Elder, August Law, Annie Osborne, and Tressa Versteg. Our senior producer is Aaron Jones. Anna Rader is our digital producer, and our executive producer is Micah Schweitzer. And special thanks to Mary Grace Bedwell. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.